Good morning, everyone. I will be reading from Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. I will read it in English first and then in Spanish. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known that it is covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I'll pause for just one second. We're in Romans 7, uh, verse 7 through 12. I don't know if we can get it up on the screens in the back. That would be perfect. Go ahead. ¿Qué diremos, pues? ¿La ley es pecado? En ninguna manera. Pero yo no conocí el pecado, sino por la ley. Porque tampoco conociera la codicia si la ley no dijera, no codiciarás. Mas el pecado, tomando ocasión por el mandamiento, produjo en mí toda codicia, porque sin ley, la ley, el pecado está muerto. Yo sin la ley vivía en un tiempo, pero viendo el vi venido el mandamiento, el pecado revivió y yo morí. Y hallé que el mismo mandamiento que era para vida, a mí me resultó para muerte, porque el pecado, tomando ocasión por el mandamiento, me engañó y por él me mató. De manera que la ley a la verdad es santa y el mandamiento santo, justo y bueno. Amen. All right, look at that. That was, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. All right. Pray with me. Father in heaven, God of all grace and mercy, Father, we pray in this moment and in this hour that you open up the eyes of our hearts, that we may receive. God, we admit, God, that we are weak without you. But we're so grateful that your word is clear, that where we are weak, you are strong. Would you strengthen us from our inner being? Would you change us from the inside out? May we be people that look like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, and move like your son, that we may bring glory to your name. I ask this in the only name that saves, Jesus Christ. And everybody say, amen. Y'all ready for the word of God? Yes. Amen. Let's dive into it. Friends, I truly believe one of the many issues with marriage, not the only issue, but one of the many issues with marriage is not that you get to know your spouse, but that you really get to know who you are. Let me say that again. One of the biggest issues with marriage is not that you really get to know your spouse, but for the first time you really get to know yourself. Marriage has a way of making us see ourselves. I like the way that B.J. Thompson says it. The issue with marriage is not that you have to deal with your spouse, but for the first time you have to deal with yourself. Let me let that sit for a minute. Don't look at your spouse. Just keep looking up here. Some people quit marriage because they are under the false assumption that they can't deal with their spouse. But it is really because they are not willing to deal with themselves. Amen. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when the spouse is the issue. You see, marriage is like a mirror. It reflects who you really are. In other words, men, no matter how many women think you're wonderful, if your wife doesn't, you're likely not that wonderful and vice versa. Oh, yeah, I'm coming to your house this morning. Why? Because marriage shows you who you really are. Last week, I explained before salvation, we were married to, anybody remember? Mr. Law. We were married to Mr. Law. And who is Mr. Law? He is he who was introduced to Moses, also known as the Ten Commandments or the other 600 laws. And I'd say I don't even like to touch the other 600 because the first 10 are already complicated all within themselves. And I know some of you guys are holy and you almost reach glorification. Uh, but for the rest of us in the room, we're still struggling. In fact, we failed before we got here. And probably failing right now as we're sitting and listening. And like any marriage, Mr. Law showed us who we really were. Mr. Law demanded us to deal with ourselves. But as we learned last week, Mr. Law couldn't help us to become who he was demanding us to be, righteous. Are you with me this morning? He only convicted and brought condemnation on us. Well... As you all know, the way out of marriage is death. Like I said last week, don't be getting no ideas. The only way to be free from Mr. Law was by death. We needed to be married to another by the name of Mr. Grace. Let me say that one more time. Y'all didn't get excited. We had to be married to another by the name of Mr. Grace. I'm so glad that there's a Mr. Grace out there. And you've been in a relationship and you've been to hell and back. You'd be glad when you really find someone that really loves you. How could we ever be married to Mr. Grace while being wedded to Mr. Law? We are released from our first marriage to the law by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. We exit, we are released, we are set free from the marriage to the law by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus died, we died. And when Jesus got up to new life, we got up to new life. But we did not get up to singleness. Instead, we have been wedded to Christ, who is Mr. Grace. Mr. Grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that Grace has an identification. I'm so glad that Grace has a face. I'm so glad that Grace has a name. And the name of Grace is Jesus Christ. You remember in the gospel when Mr. Law demanded stoning of the woman who was caught in adultery and who shows up on the scene to deliver the adulterous woman from Mr. Law. Mr. Grace shows up and say anyone who was without sin throw the first stone. And Mr. Grace could have stoned her because he was without sin. But Grace treats us better than we deserve. Grace treats us better than 
You know God's been treating you way better than what you deserve. He's been giving you way more grace than you deserve. And it is a grace that never runs dry. The question is, how did Mr. Grace make us righteous, thereby doing what the law could not do, which is make us righteous? The main point of the book of Romans up to this point is that God is gloriously righteous. Lean in on this church. God is gloriously righteous in justifying the ungodly. Somebody say that to me. Justifying the ungodly. uh, See, y'all didn't want to say that was me when I said ungodly. Let me bring it back. Somebody say that's me. Ungodly. He's talking about me. God is gloriously righteous in justifying the ungodly by faith alone apart from works of the law. We see this in Romans chapter 4 verse 5. It says this. So the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as what? Righteousness. Faith credit as righteousness apart from works of the law. This has nothing to do with what you do. God loves you and God has clothed you with righteousness apart from you obeying his commands. That's scandalous. But how can this be? How can God justify and declare as righteous the ungodly who simply look away from themselves to Christ and trust them? Because there's a dilemma. God, you are righteous. How do you let thieves and murderers and rapists and liars go free without making them serve their time? How can he equip the guilty? The answer came in one of the most important statements of the Bible. Romans chapter 3. Verses 24 through 26. If I was you, I would highlight this in my Bible. And this is ammunition for the enemy when you need to find a reason to keep on keeping on. God put forward Jesus Christ, his son, to die in our place so that he would be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God put Jesus forth so that he would be just in showing us grace in the just, so that he may be just in acquitting us in the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And there is the high point of the book of Romans. Jesus, who was crucified, they hung him high and they stretched him wide. For me and you, he died. He bared our sins on the cross. He is our blessed redeemer. We trust in him because he justifies us before God. God gave him, and he is our righteousness. That, friends, is the glorious news of the gospel. And I can sit down from there. You ought to rejoice that you're justified. That if you die today, if you drop dead today and stood before God, God wouldn't send you to hell. You ought to rejoice over that fact that there's no condemnation in your life. Do you know that's good news, that you're at peace with God? We're worried about being at peace with everybody else. You ought to rejoice that you're at peace with God. Your mama may not like you. Your daddy may not like you, but that don't matter. As long as God is good with me, I got a reason to rejoice. 
Oh, and that didn't help you. He woke you up this morning. You ought to rejoice because he got you out of your bed this morning. God got you up this morning. He didn't have to do it. He didn't need to do it, but he did it anyways. But Paul has a dilemma. And today we must understand that our biggest enemy has not missed the law. My biggest enemy is Dexter Harris. I've done more wrong to me than anybody has ever done to me. I wish I showed other people grace as much grace as I show myself. The biggest enemy is within us. We must all ask ourselves, who was the problem in the previous marriage? Mr. Law or Mr. Flesh, Mrs. Flesh hyphenated law? Paul defends Mr. Law this morning because many who read or heard him thought that he was calling God's law evil. People was like, Paul, what are you talking about? It sounds like you're coming at the law. It sounds like you've been beefing with the law. It sounds like you and the law have issues. And Paul wants to clear that up this morning. He wants to make it clear that he ain't got no issue with God's law. Let's look at some of the stuff that Paul has already said about Mr. Law. In Romans 3.20, he says, By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, nobody will be made right by keeping the Ten Commandments. Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He goes on in Romans 4, 13 through 14 and says, The promise to Abraham was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Romans 5, 20. The law came in so that the, right, so that the transgressions would increase. Romans 6.14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And you have got to imagine that if you are in the shoes of those who were hearing it, in the shoes of Jewish people who in their mind, they thought that their relationship with God was contingent on the law. They thought it was contingent on keeping the Ten Commandments. Their entire childhood, they have known that this is the way to be made right with God. And here comes the Apostle Paul centuries, centuries later conveying to them that no one will be made righteous by keeping the law. You think about some of the things that your parents instilled in you. And when you go out into the world and people tell you that, there's, that, 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 that that's not true or that's not right, something happens on the inside. This is what I've known. This is what I've learned. And so you can imagine that his audience is wrestling with his teaching. And so Paul, as a clever theologian, is weaving the gospel and showing them that God justifies us apart from the law. But I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not beefing with the law. I'm good with the law. So let me explain why. Paul wants us to see that we are running from Mr. Law. We were running from Mr. Law because he was commanding us to deal with ourselves. <laughs> That'll make you run from your marriage. 
a cause to deal with yourself. Paul wants us to see it was a contentious marriage because when Mr. Law was telling us the truth about ourselves, we didn't like what we saw in the mirror. The law was not the problem then and it's not the problem now. It was our sinful nature in Adam before salvation, indwelling sin after salvation. And what is indwelling sin? We found out last week that the gospel not only takes away the penalty of sin, but it takes away the power of sin. The, law, the, the gospel doesn't just take away the penalty of sin, but it takes away the power of sin. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. God don't only take away your guilt, but he gives you power over sin in your day-to-day life. The gospel takes power away from sin by setting up a new kingdom in our hearts. And what comes with a new kingdom? A new king. Jesus is Lord and sin is not. Uh, You missed your shot right there. Let me give it to you again. Jesus is Lord and sin is not. With the new king comes a new kingdom. The kingdom brings new desires. The Holy Spirit indwells in us. And we have new desires, holy desires. We want to please God. We want to serve God. We want to grow in our spiritual life. An example, we want to put others before ourselves. Some of y'all are like, I ain't there yet. I ain't there yet. Uh Y'all got to keep praying for me. I must not be saved. Nobody come before me. All of these are good and wonderful signs of genuine grace in our lives. God has given us a new nature. But in every kingdom, there are always enemies looking to steal the throne. In every kingdom, there are always enemies looking to steal the throne. Sin may be off the throne, but sin is not all the way gone. Sin remains lurking in the shadows of our inner being. Sin goes where we go and even speaks to us sometimes. You ever had sin speak to you? Come on now. You ever had it late at night? You just chilling. You you just minding your business. And here comes sin. Hello. How are you? I'm the other you. I thought you died, man. I'm back from the dead. And then what does sin try to do? It tries to take control. It wars against who? The Holy Spirit within. Do you know that after salvation, a war begins? And where? Inside of us. Which is why we say, before I came to Christ, it seems like everything was okay. Now that I'm in Christ, it feels like all hell is breaking loose because a war has kicked off. Sin wants the kingdom back. The best way to explain this is by the show Flash. Hopefully I get this right, Ken. There's a character on there by the name of Caitlin Snow. Some of y'all may not watch it, but there she is right there. She look cool, right? She all, she all right. She all right. She all good. She look real nice and innocent. Uh, Caitlin Snow is a brilliant scientist on Team Flash. But earlier on, she finds out that lurking in her DNA is another character inside of her called Killer Frost. Put her up. Look at that. That's evil right there. 
Killer Frost is in her DNA, and she did not know that Killer Frost was inside of her. But one day, Killer Frost surfaced herself, and Killer Frost is different from Caitlyn. She wants Caitlyn to do bad things, and at times, she would, she would ask Caitlyn to sin. There was a war going on inside of Caitlyn. Sometimes she's Caitlyn, and sometimes she's Killer Frost. Sometimes she's nice, and sometimes she's mean. Sometimes we want to walk with God, and sometimes we want to walk with the world. Sometimes I want to praise him, and sometimes I want to go do my own thing. Sometimes I want to control myself, and sometimes I don't want to control myself. Sometimes I want to cuss you out, and sometimes I want to forgive you. Here, am I talking to anybody? Can anybody relate? Sometimes I want to be in light, and sometimes I want to be in darkness, depending on what time you catch me. I hope you catch me in light. You don't want to catch Killer Frost. <laughs> some of y'all had some Killer Frost moments this week. Some of y'all had him on a car ride here. Y'all was like, I got to get to church. I got to get to church. <laughs> oh, we, oh, we. You know when it get bad, you got to turn your praise music on. When you hit your radio, but 92.3 is still on, so yeah, that ain't, that ain't what I need, that ain't what I need, that ain't what I need. Came through dripping, no, 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 not that. Came through holy, yeah, there it is right there. All right, all right, now I'm ready to go. That's how it is, I'm just being real. Now let me give you some scripture so that you know that I'm not lying about this. Galatians 5.16 says this, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Do you see the war? For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Friends, there is a war on the inside. All believers have a war going on in the inside. Sin versus the spirit at war. But Paul wants to make clear. And get the law in the clear by showing us that Mr. Law had nothing to do with our failure to please God. Watch this. What then shall we say? This is him in the verse. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Paul wants to be clear that his teaching on salvation by grace through faith is not a knock on the law. Paul has no beef with God's law. Paul is like when we were married to Mr. Law, he wasn't the problem. Mr. Law was telling and demanding righteousness out of us. Now, come on, church. God's law is good, right? It is holy. It reveals God's character to us. Think about it. Mr. Law told us not to have any other gods before God. Is that a bad thing? No. God is worthy of all praise. He's worthy of your deepest affection and your undivided attention. There's no one like God. There's none beside him. He is the one who is and is to come. Before there were stars or moons or frogs or crickets or anything, it was God all by himself. And Mr. Law said, worship him and worship him alone. There's nothing wrong with that. Mr. Law also told us and commanded us not to steal. I say not to steal now. This is the good thing, right? Nobody want anybody stealing from them, right? You want somebody coming up in your crib taking your stuff? Not at all, especially your Jordans if you got some J's. You don't want nobody taking your J's, do you? 
Come on, somebody. I knew I had a couple Jordan fans up in here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to go back to a killer frost. You feel me? Mr. Law tried to instruct us on the path of righteousness. The law stands for love and righteousness. How much better would the world be if we all just listened and obeyed Mr. Law? The world would be a better place. The psalmist says it like this. Blessed are those who way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed is he who way is blameless and who walks in the way of the Lord. If we were to follow the law, it would actually produce life. It would actually lead us to a fruitful life. But because we are sinners, the law cannot help us. Only in a few ways. The law reveals sin as sin. Watch Paul. Yet it, <laughs> yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law is a good teacher. I was having a conversation with one of the guys in our church about pool tables. He was explaining to me the lengths they go to be sure that the pool table is level and exactly right. There's a science to this thing. I didn't know. I just thought you put the balls on the table, you take the stick, and you just get going. But, it, but, but come to find out, it is critical that the table is level. And there's only one way that they know that the table is level. They use this little instrument, and if you're do, good with working, use this thing called a leveler. And what this leveler does is it lets you know if the table is level or not. And how do you know? That little bubble right there in the middle lines up. It gets right there in the middle to let you know that everything is balanced. But friends, there's a greater leveler called the law of God. And it reveals to us that we are morally out of balance. And without it, we cannot know just how out of balance we are. Because if we were to be honest, we may say that we're sinners, but we don't know how deep we are in sin. We don't know how jacked up we are. Let's be honest. We look at the person next to us and say, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I, I, I know I did this, but look what you did. And every time you get into an argument in your own marriage, who comes up in the inside? There's a little lawyer down inside of all of us that comes to plead our case every time. You know you did this, but you ain't say when you did that. But what about this? What about this? That's why we need the law of God. Sometimes we need something outside of us to tell us about us. The law is a tool because the law reveals sin. The law says you must not lie. And if we ask ourselves, have you ever told a lie before? You would say yes. And if you say no, you're lying. <laughs> and those who tell lies are liars. And by your own admission, God would condemn you forever. For a lie. This is what Paul is saying. The law doesn't make you a sinner, but it exposes to you that you are a sinner. The law doesn't make you a sinner. It exposes to you. It conveys to you that you are a sinner. 
Galatians 5, 21 says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Just say ouch when I get to yours. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do we know these are sin? The law reveals they are sin. The law reveals us. The law exposes us. Paul realizes that the issue is not himself. I mean, he realizes that the issue is not the law. And so at this point, Paul gets his Michael Jackson on. At this point, he says, I'm talking to the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to do what? Change his ways. If you want to make the world a better place, you got to look at yourself and make a what? Make a change. Paul understand that his biggest issue was not the law, but his biggest issue was Paul. We are the issue. Friend, so I ask you again, who is the problem? Mr. Law or Mrs. Flesh hyphenated law? Notice Paul doesn't say that he would not have, have been a sinner without the law, but that he would not have known sin and recognized himself to be a sinner. In his saved state, Paul comes to grips just how big of a sinner he really is. And one of the things that I love about Paul is that Paul did not chase after the holiest trophy. He chased after the ugliest trophy. He, he was the kind of guy that would admit that I am the biggest of them all. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. How many Christians are running around saying, hey, I'm the biggest sinner right here. You want to know who the biggest sinner is? It's me right here. Paul says that I am the worst of sinners. How can Paul say he is the worst of sinners or call himself a wretched man? Because he is more aware of his own sin than anyone else. Paul is aware of his own sin. Friends, are you aware of your own sin? Some people think growing in your Christian life means seeing less sin in your life. Some people think growing means you see more sin in other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you got 20-20 with everybody else, but you ain't got no 20-20 when it comes to you. Double standards. One of the hardest things is to see how jacked up I really am, how messed up I really am. You ever see those saints who fall on their face before God and say, what a wretched man I am? They begin to confess because the closer you get to God, the more undone you ought to see that you are. And the more undone that I see that I am, the more I realize that I need a Savior, the more I realize that I need the cross, the more meaningful the blood of Jesus comes to me. You can't rejoice over the blood until you understand how jacked up you are. You can't rejoice over the cross until you understand Oh, what a wretched man that I am. 
You ain't worship God until you understand that you are dead in your transgressions and sin. And a God out of heaven left and crossed seas and mountains and did everything to gather you to himself. Paul realized, church, just how messed up he was. The apostle Paul, the one who built thousands of churches, the one who wrote half of the New Testament. I don't care how holy you think that you are. You don't get no better than Paul. He was shipwrecked. He was naked. He went unfed. And he says that I'm the biggest sinner of them all. We can drop our masks now. And we can be real this morning. This is a place to be real. Paul realized how jacked up he was. Maturing in Christ is becoming more aware of the log in your own eye and then perceiving the speck in everyone else's eye. True maturity is when you can see the leveler and realize the bubble is nowhere near the middle. Friends, it is not good enough to know that sin is within you, but we must also understand how sin works within us. Mm. Friends, it is not good enough to know that sin is within you, but it is critical. It is vital that we understand how sin works within us. How does indwelling sin work inside of the born-again believer? How does undwelling, indwelling sin wages war in us? What are the tactics? Paul explains. Number one, sin uses the law to create all kinds of evil desires. Look at what he says. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now hold up, Paul. Sounds like you're saying that sin worked through the commandments to produce coveting in you. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I thought the commandments forbid coveting. So how did the commandments produce coveting in you? Friends, let's say understand what coveting is. To covet simply means to want something that isn't yours. Jealousy, desiring what someone else is ha have from their wife or their husband to their car. This is also known as haters. Pretty sure you guys know who they are. Got to shake my haters off. These are also known as haters. Everybody walking with you. It's not for you. Paul said the command did the opposite in him of what it demanded out of him. It said it produced, he said that it produced all kinds of covetousness. Produce in me, the word that he used is katakzama, means to work out something. And I just said it the way I felt it. I mean, it it means to work out something, to bring something about, to accomplish, to carry out a task until it is finished. Instead of producing what the law intended, which was a crop of contentment, it produced a crop of covetousness. Paul said, I got up and I decided not to covet, but my rebellious flesh took over and caused me to covet in ways that I didn't even think was possible. You ever sinned in ways... You didn't think you can sin? You got that, you, you know you get that creative, but you got that creative. Come on, can we be honest this morning? 
I didn't done some things that I thought I'll never do. And not only did I do things that I thought I'll never do, I got creative with the things that I thought that I'll never do. Uh, y'all ain't going to talk to me this morning. Some of y'all like, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. Girl, I'm with you, girl. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> okay, so let's see this. Let's see how this works. The command of God goes to the ears of Paul. Thou shall not covet. By the time... The command hits the human heart because the heart is wicked. The heart says, hmm, thank you. I was not even thinking about coveting, but that sounds nice right about now. Wouldn't you like to have their car? Wouldn't you like to have their wife? Wouldn't you like to have their husband? Wouldn't you like to have their camel? Some of y'all rich and got camels. Don't don't even play like that. So it goes down, it goes through the ears, it goes down to the heart. Our hearts are wicked, and it takes that command, and it reverses it. Number two, the law awakens the flesh. It does this by awakening the flesh. The command goes through the ear, down to the heart, and it awakens the flesh. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Dead here I take to mean dormant, inactive, lifeless, The law actually stirred up sin in Paul instead of restraining it. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was with Paul, who was sinful and selfish. The law stirred the sin that was in Paul's life already. Let me explain it this way. Let me use motion lights. It looks like motion sensors. If there is no one in the bathroom, the lights are off. Are there lights in the bathroom? Yes. Is there energy to cause the lights to come on? Yes. So what happens the moment the sensors detect motion? Boom, the lights come on. Did the motion create the lights? No, the motion caused them to come alive. What Paul is saying is that the law is the motion and sin is the lights. And when our flesh hears that it cannot do something, boom, the flesh is turned on and say, I want to do that. There's another way to illustrate it. I heard a story that several years ago, a high-rise hotel was built in Galveston, Texas, overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. In fact, they sank the, uh, the foundation down into the Gulf and built a structure out over the water. When the hotel was about to have its grand opening, someone thought, what if people decide to fish out the hotel window? I mean... People do stuff like that. So they place signs in the hotel room. No fishing out the hotel window. Many people ignored the signs, however, and it created difficult problems. Lines got snarled, and people in the dining room saw fish flapping against the picture windows. The manager of the hotel solved it all by taking down the little signs. No one checks into a hotel room thinking about fishing outside of the window. The law, although well intended, created the problem. You see, the law awakens rebellion in us. When the flesh is told what not to do, it wants to do it. I see this in my two-year-old daughter all the time. The thing that I tell her she cannot have is the very thing that she wants to have. So I tried to reverse it. The room she can go in, I tell her she can't go in that room. 
See if that works. We see this also in Romans 8, 7. For the mind, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to who? To God. For why? For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. You see, the flesh is hostile to God's law. It wants to fight on sight. It ain't trying to wait. It want to beef with the law as soon as it sees it. The flesh and the law do not get along. It reminds me of my older brother and this guy in the neighborhood. Every time this guy would see my brother, he'll be on chill. But the moment he seen my brother, he wanted to fight him. Friends, there's an enemy on the inside of you that wants to fight against God, that wants to rebel against God. The flesh wars against God. Paul goes on to say, I was once alive apart from the law. Alive here is not eternal life or spiritually alive, but rather I was alive with coveting. I was at the hotel just fine before I saw the sign. We might say it, I was just minding my own business. But Paul goes on to say, but when the commandments came, Sin came alive and I died. The very, command, the very commandment that promises life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the command, through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Step number three with sin. Sin takes the law and it weaponizes it against us. This is a slow motion replay of how indwelling sin gets, to, gets us to actually sin. We see here that sin weaponizes the law. Sin takes something good and uses it to create an, uh, an alternative evil desire. The very command is weaponized to create desires to do the opposite of what the law has asked. In other words, the law says don't do that, and the flesh says how wonderful would it be to do just that. Paul is like the law is good, but sin uses it for evil. Just like fire is good, but if you put it in the wrong hand, they'll use it for evil. You see, the law, when used rightly, that is when instructions are obeyed, many good things could come about in our lives. It was originally given by God as a rule of life for Israel, and it was a guard to promote life. God gave this law to Israel to protect them, but instead, what do we get out of Israel? All kinds of sin. And what is the main goal of sin? Sin wants to completely take over. Friends, sin doesn't want an inch of your life. Sin wants all of your life. I like the way Ken puts it. He says, don't even stick your toe in the puddle of sin because once you taste it, you want the whole thing. It's just like me when I'm trying to fight these cravings. I say, I'm going to have one Oreo. By the time I take one Oreo, I look up, 20 Oreos later. <sighs> Oh, no, I can do this. I'm strong enough. One Oreo, it ain't going to take me down. Next thing you know, old pack gone. And half of the milk gone. Lila ain't got no milk to drink. I didn't <laughs> took it down. I, I, I tell you, I thought I heard God's voice last night uh, coming out of my kitchen, and it was the Oreos calling me. I was like, <laughs> I, here, here I am, Lord, send me. And sin was sending me to them Oreos. 
But see, see, <laughs> seeing wants to take over. Now I want you to see the progression. Paul says it produced all kinds of covetousness, desires, unholy desires. And then he says, it deceives me. Seeing always involves deception. And through it, it killed him. Death, these are the weapons of indwelling sin. Desire, deception, and death. Watch it in James 1, 14 and 15. This is going to get really serious. But each person is tempted when he is Lord and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. How does indwelling sin do this? It takes the commands of God and it seizes the opportunity. This is a military term in the Greek. It means to create a beachhead. Or, as church folks know it, a stronghold from which a launch or an invasion is, is, uh, is launched from. So let's think this through. Imagine that your life is a kingdom. And for the believer, Jesus is the king on the throne of your heart. Sin is hostile to Jesus. Sin wants to dethrone the king. Sin dethrones him by getting you to obey the flesh rather than the Holy Spirit. King Jesus is giving you commands daily intended to create a good desire and lead to fruit in your life. But within the kingdom is indwelling sin. And what is indwelling sin objective? It is to take these righteous desires captive and turn them into evil desires. How? By getting us to believe that disobeying the commands of the king is far better for us. Remember, have you ever questioned Jesus and asked him, was his will actually good for you. Sin wants you to question God. We see this in Genesis. Satan says to Eve, did God really say you shall not eat? Sin creates a question, then a diversion, and a little space in your heart where you don't allow the king on the throne to reign. Sin must create compromise. When we compromise, it creates space for sin to launch an attack in the kingdom. So sin tricks the mind by making it believe something evil is good. Therefore, friends, we must guard our minds with the word of God. We must grow in the word of God. You cannot take sin captive if you do not know the word of God. You will be deceived by Satan if your mind is not conforming into the word of God. This is what Romans 12, 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. Some of us, we get saved, but we're not growing in the word of God. That by testing it, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So sin tricks the mind. The mind says, yes, this is good. Boom, sin has created what? A pathway to the heart. It, 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 and after that, it gets to the heart to take up a little more territory. It then goes down into the heart where sin is actually birthed and given life. The heart takes the thought and it turns it into a desire. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs 
of life. Sin gets in the mind. It deceives. It says something is evil is good. It goes down to the heart. When it gets to the heart, which is the factory where all our desires come from, the heart says, yes, I want it. And once the heart says, I want it, the heart sends it where? It sends it to the wheel. And the wheel says... Let's go do it. And all of a sudden, you're giving your hands and your mouth and your feet over to the things of unrighteousness. This is why Paul says in chapter 6, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Friends, the more we conform our minds to the word of God, the more we shield ourselves from the deception of sin. And don't you think for a moment that you're smarter than Satan. And don't you think for a moment that you're more powerful than indwelling sin. Friends, you need to know the word of God. Satan makes really, 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 really good counterfeits that looks just like the real thing. Can I use my banking illustration for a moment? I want to make sure that I'm coming through. When we were in banking, you know that there were millions of counterfeits, but they never made us study counterfeits. They made us study the real thing because they knew if we knew the real thing, detail for detail, that when counterfeits came through, we would be able to uh, uh, detect it easy. I remember one time a guy had a counterfeit bill. He gave me a bunch of money. There was real money mixed in, and there was a counterfeit bill. I was just counting. I wasn't even looking. By the time I got to the counterfeit bill, I said, that don't, that's not the real thing, friends. When the word of God gets down on the inside and somebody starts talking some crazy stuff and when sin starts talking, you say, that don't sound like Jesus to me. That don't sound like the word of God to me. I got to get away from that. Many saints have fallen into all kinds of false gospels because they're not understanding and growing and maturing in the word of God. And so when the word of God gets in the mind and we begin to behold Jesus, what begins to happen inside of the heart is we begin to desire more truth. I think Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, and to another they will not go. When this is over your heart, sin may try to get through, but it got to go through the filter of the word. And if it doesn't make it to the word, it can't make it to the wheel. And if it don't make it to the wheel, then that's not what you're doing. But when the word of God gets into the mind, down into the heart all of a sudden there's more patience in your life there's more love in your life there's more grace in your life there's more desire for truth Romans 6 13 Paul is clear do not give our members over sin wants to destroy you it doesn't want to build you up and I don't know what you're going through right now and I don't know what sin you're playing with but can I encourage you that sin has nothing good for you. Jesus is better than sin. As Christians, we are always at war within ourselves. So a Christian is a divided individual. There's no war within the non-Christian. But the moment you become a Christian, now the battle begins. Now the strongest temptations come. 
And the war within begins. Why? Because we are justified. We are redeemed. We are in union with Christ, but we are still fleshly. We remain in bodies that are not yet glorified. But the thing that I love about scripture is that it does not leave us to ourself. Our hope to overcome this indwelling sin is not by looking to myself. A lot of reasons that Christians go wrong is when they see that they're struggling in the area, they try to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But instead of looking to yourself, as Paul said last week, you ought to look to Mr. Grace. You ought to look to Jesus because when you look to Jesus, he gives you the power to overcome. The old saint said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a savior. Amen and amen. I love the way that Philippians put it. It says, I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. I said, he who has begun a good, who began the good work in you, you know that you didn't just come to God overnight. God came to you and God who started the work in you is going to bring it to completion. I've never known God to start a project that he doesn't finish. Once he put the down payment on you, he assured you that he's going to bring you into his kingdom. Every day that you get up and you're still believing, you ought to give God praise because the only reason I'm still walking in his grace, I'm still walking in his mercy, is because God is for me and not against me. Paul says, I am sure of this. 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 Where's your confidence this morning? I am sure of this. I am sure of this. What are you sure of, Paul? That he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. I'm sure that God will finish his work in me. I know I may not look like that yesterday. I may not look like it tomorrow. I may be struggling. I may be on my face. You may see me crying. You may see me weak, but I'm sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in me will bring it to completion. Who am I preaching to this morning? Can I preach it? How I feel it? I'm so glad that he who's begun a good work in me will bring it to completion because if not, my marriage would have fell apart a long time ago. My children would have been lost a long time ago. I wouldn't be preaching today if he who begun a good work in me didn't bring it to completion. God will bring it to completion. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his glorious presence. The who? Come on, y'all. To the only wise God, dominion and majesty and glory, both now and forever. Jesus said, he who believe in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Can I preach it like I feel it this morning? He that come to me, although he thirsts, I'm the living water, will never thirst again. Can I preach it how I feel it? He said that I'm the bread of life. Anyone who eats from me will never hunger again. I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll 
find your way out of darkness. Can I preach it how I heard it? He says that he takes us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Can I preach it like he said it? Christ said, Paul says, better to be in Christ than to be into the world because to die is to gain and to live is to Christ. He says, I count my life of nothing at all that I may finish my race. Come on, somebody. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you may ever think or even ask. Let me keep going. Because in the book of Romans, chapter 8, he says, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? In other words, if I gave you the greater, I'll give you the lesser. If you just stay with me and stick with me. Oh, I want to go back to the Old Testament because he took Moses out of the out of Egypt. He walked them across the Red Sea. Oh my goodness, the sea is there. How are we going to get through it? God spreads the Red Sea. His people walk through it. Pharaoh comes after them and he drowns them. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that he has said or even asked. Friends, we got to learn to stand on the promises of God. The word of God says all of his promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. God be glorified.